A few years ago, uh, my wife had some of her jewelry stolen. And so we contacted the Lexington Police Department. She met with a detective and he filed a report. And a few days later, we got a call from the detective that they believed they had found my wife's jewelry. It was at a uh, pawn shop here in town. And so we met the detective over at the pawn shop and Anne was able to identify all of her almost all of her jewelry and was able to reclaim it at that point. <clears throat> all but one ring. The ring that was missing was this ring. Now it looks pretty expensive, but don't let that fool you, okay? The pawn shop didn't accept it because even though this is a huge aquamarine stone, it's not real. And they knew it, and so they said, it's just costume jewelry, we're not gonna accept that. So, um, now, that's my wife's birthstone, and it happened to belong to a great aunt who she was really close to, who it was also her birthstone. So they had all of this kind of in common, and it, it didn't have any financial value to speak of, but it, it had great sentimental value to Anne, and she was as disappointed about losing this as she had been about the diamond earrings that I had given her. Go figure, right? Well, we found out because the police saw the uh, surveillance uh, footage from the pawn shop. They knew who had taken the ring. And so through a very close friend of ours who was able to negotiate that ring and was able to get that ring back, it meant everything to her. Uh, our two daughters both were able to uh, wear this ring at their weddings, you know, Something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue. It meant something to them. A connection with family and past. And I can't, I can't even tell you what it meant to get that piece of her jewelry back. The word reclaim means to recover or to retrieve something that is stolen. Or lost. And through this series that we've titled Reclaim, we're going to be looking at this one key point. It's key today, but it's going to be key throughout this entire series, and it's this. It is time to reclaim what has been lost. It is time to reclaim what has been lost. Our study comes from the book of Ezra, as Micah mentioned, and this is a story about the people of God and how they reclaimed several things that had been taken from them. This book was written likely by Ezra, who was a priest and a devoted scribe, who records how God faithfully orchestrated the reclaiming of the temple of God and the city of Jerusalem. Now, I want to give you a little bit of background, and then we'll jump into the text. <clears throat> God's people at Previous, before the writing, or during the writing of the book of Ezra, they're in, they are in exile from Judah and Jerusalem. Now we read about this in Isaiah, the 39th chapter, starting with verse 5, it says this, then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, this is the king of Judah, okay, this is a hundred or so years previous to the writing of the book of Ezra. 
Hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you will be taken away and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And Babylon is where the people of Judah are. This, is, this prophecy actually was fulfilled, as you can imagine. In 605 BC, the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, came and deported the royal family back to Babylon. And then in 597 BC, Nebuchadnezzar came and he exiled the entire force of 7,000 fighting men, the army of Judah that was left, as well as a thousand skilled workers and artisans. And then in 586 BC, he came and looted the city of Jerusalem and the temple. He then burned most of the city and tore down her walls. And finally, he exiled the rest of those living in Jerusalem, with the exception of the poorest of the poor. He left them to take care of what was left of Judah. And God's people now have been living in Babylon in exile for 70 years. And we come to Ezra, the first chapter. Verse 1 says this. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. Ezra opens this book up by telling us about this proclamation that Cyrus, king of Persia, issued. Now, who is this king of Persia? A man by the name of Cyrus. Well, he's officially known as Cyrus II. And he's the guy who built the Persian Empire. He's also the guy that defeated the Babylonians. He overwhelmed, overran the Babylonians. The Babylonians were the ones who deported the Jews from Jerusalem back to Babylonia. Ezra tells us that Cyrus issued this proclamation that was given, and he says, in order, that, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. Jeremiah was one of the prophets of God. Years and years before, he had issued this prophecy. And God uses King Cyrus, a pagan king, to fulfill the prophecy from Jeremiah. It's found in Jeremiah 29, verse 10. It says, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. Now, it might sound like, well, that's, that's simple, right? Babylon, everything we all know. About. But this is all before any of this exile has happened that Jeremiah gives this prophecy. 70 years. In 538 BC, Cyrus issues a decree that allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple and their city. Ezra reveals a key reason why you and I can reclaim what has been lost. And it's this, God is in control. Now, I know you may know that, you may have heard it, but 
This was really important for people who were 70 years in exile. They had to remember that God is in control. And when these prophecies are fulfilled, they know that. God had said that a long time ago, and now it's coming to pass. It's interesting how God managed to fulfill all of these prophecies, how he was able to return his people back to Judah. First, evidence of that is God used foreign kings and nations to carry out his plans. His people aren't getting their hands dirty. He's going to let these foreign pagan kings do all the heavy lifting. God raised up Nebuchadnezzar to discipline his people because they wouldn't repent of their sins. And the prophet Isaiah predicted this. Again, a hundred years prior, he predicts in Isaiah 45, 13, he says, I will raise up Cyrus. We're not even sure. Who is Cyrus? He's going to raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free, but not for a price or reward, says the Lord Almighty. Again, long before it ever happened, they're predicting it. Isaiah predicts it. And that's exactly what happened. God raised up Cyrus, king of Persia, to defeat the Babylonians and liberate the people of Judah. And then Ezra recorded this. At the end of verse 1, pick it up, and then verse 2, he says, The Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Led by God, Cyrus, king of Persia, announces that God's appointed him to build the temple. Now, he doesn't actually build the temple, but he gets all of this together to make it possible so the temple gets built. Getting a pagan king to build your temple is like getting the government to pay your taxes or getting your older sister to make your bed every day. It just doesn't happen, right? God knows the end from the beginning. My first boss said he sees the whole parade from the very first float to the very last, all at the same time. We tend to see it one float at a time. God sees it all. And by his Holy Spirit, he has caused his prophets to prophesy these future events. And then they come to pass because God is in control over all of humanity. He sets up rulers, he deposes kings, and he causes all things to work together for his purposes, to benefit his servants, and for his glory. Cyrus didn't worship the God of Israel, the God of Judah. He didn't even believe in him. And yet, God used Cyrus to get his people back to their homeland. God used this pagan king to make possible the building of the temple of the Lord. Well, Cyrus's proclamation continues. Look at verse 3. He continues. He says, any of his people, he's talking about God's people, among you may go up to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. Cyrus, 
he continues to pronounce this incredible blessing to the exiles that they can go home. And we see this again in a second way that God's control is evidenced here. God controlled every detail of the return of his people from exile. God's people, many of them who had lived in a captivity most of their lives, now they hear a pagan king say, you can go home, you can go back home if you want to. And those who returned, they would rebuild the altar of God, the temple of God, and the walls of the city. So Cyrus opens the door for the Jews to return home. And then he goes one step further to make sure that the temple got rebuilt. Look at verse 4. This proclamation continues. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. King Cyrus not only allows the people who want to return and go back to Jerusalem, those who chose, though, to stay in Babylon, they played a part as well. They were to assist those who were returning by giving them money and goods and livestock. They're also expected to provide these free will offerings for the temple that hasn't even been built yet, but it's going to be. And the entire Jewish community living in Babylonia was to participate in this enterprise. Whether they went back or they stayed, they were to participate in the rebuilding of the temple in order to restore worship to the Lord God Almighty in Jerusalem. And then Ezra tells us, how the people responded. Look at verses five and six. He says, then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts in addition to all the freewill offerings. Not only did that happen, but if you read the rest of the chapter, you'll find that King Cyrus, king of Persia, opened up and returned all of those precious items that had been looted from the temple by Nebuchadnezzar, and he gave them to those exiles who were returning back to rebuild the temple. Not only was God in control, but when it comes to reclaiming things that have been stolen, that have been taken, that have been broken. There's another key component in this we see in this story, and that is this. God is faithful. I can only imagine the people in exile for 70 years may have been scratching their heads wondering, is this my ultimate fate? Am I going to die here on foreign soil? But they were reminded of the prophecies from Isaiah and Jeremiah. The God, God had been faithful in the past, surely he'll be faithful again. See, God did all of this because he was committed to his people. God is faithful to keep his word. He's faithful to keep his covenants. He is faithful to keep his commitments. God opened the door for his people to return to their homeland, to reclaim their city, their temple, and to worship the worship of their God. And throughout this series... 
we will see those returning from exile would not only return, but they would finish the mission that God had given them to accomplish when they return home. And just like the returning exiles, we too have a mission to reclaim. You know, over my study period this past summer, I spent a lot of time reflecting on what we had been through over the course of the last few years. And I started thinking about things that were happening before and then things that happened during the pandemic and then things that had happened following it. And I saw that there were so many aspects of the church that were gone, they were missing, things that needed to be reclaimed. And I started to think, what, what were some of those things? You know, during the pandemic, we went through a season where many things changed. Some of them were damaged. Others were eliminated completely. One example of that was the community of believers here at Northeast. One of our values is that we strive for committed community. We believe that life happens best in a biblical community. Ecclesiastes, Solomon says, two are better than one. We believe that. We believe that. You're a source of strength to each other when you come together. But during the pandemic, we stopped meeting together for a while. I mean, we met via Zoom, but you know, we didn't know what we were up against. And so for 15 weeks, we didn't meet in here. Now, I came in here and I preached to an empty room and a camera. Uh, man, that was boring. I was even boring myself sometimes. Thanks for laughing at that. It really speaks to my preaching. I appreciate that. But we came back after 15 weeks, but it wasn't until 16 weeks later that we actually started meeting in classes and student ministry came back. Life groups were meeting via Zoom. Some were. Some groups weren't. And some groups never came back. Over the course of the pandemic, the national average church attendance, we've been told, declined somewhere around 30 to 40%. This probably comes as a surprise to some, but fewer people regularly attend church now than prior to the pandemic according to the analysis of the Institute of Family Studies. Let me give you some national statistics for those who like that stuff. In 2009, 34% of Americans attended a religious service at least once or twice a month. That number fell to 31% in 2020 and 28% in 2021. Our average attendance here in August of this year was 492 people, average. August of 2019, before the pandemic, was 706 people, a difference of 212, or roughly 30%. That's why over the past three weeks, we have encouraged you all to sign up to join a life group. Philip did such a great job. And uh, we want you to be part of community. Because whether we're 706 or 494, we need each other. We need each other. And so we set out to reclaim community. And we're in the process of that. It's exciting to see. 
And those of you that have agreed to lead groups, I just, from my heart to you, thank you for doing that. It means the world to us. Thank you. Well, there's another, probably the most serious area that I've struggled with or grieved over has been the decline in the area of prayer. And somebody go, didn't more people pray during the pandemic? Well, you would think. But the truth is that the data doesn't reflect that. The data from the, pre, the Pew Research Center says that in 2007, 58% of U.S. adults said they prayed every day. In 2014, that number fell to 55%. But in 2022, that number is at 45%. Something has been happening. I don't know if this is directly related to the pandemic. In fact, my gut tells me it's not. The pandemic just kind of sped it up a little bit. What does all this have to do with who we are? What does this research mean? The decline in church attendance and prayer. David Kenneman is the president of Barna. It used to be called Barna Research. It's a research wing that studies things that people of faith uh, focus on and concern about. He summarized the implications of the research that they've been doing this way. This is what he says. More than two and a half decades worth of tracking research shows that Americans are softening in their practice of Christianity. I don't like that word, softening. These stunning changes raise questions and suggest urgent implications, Kenneman says. One of those practices that has been in decline even before the pandemic is the practice of prayer. It's a discipline. It's a privilege. We get to talk to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And it's time for the church to reclaim prayer. Last year, I had breakfast with a very dear ministry friend of mine. His name is Steve Pearson. Some of you may know him. He preaches at Church of the Savior, which is out on the Fayette and uh, Jesmond County lines. We talked for a little while just about how ministry was following the pandemic, and then we shared how faithful God had been to both of our churches. It's amazing the testimonies of God's faithfulness during a very challenging time. And then he told me about this prayer group of ministers, and now I knew why I was at this breakfast. He said they, these group, this group had been praying now for months, praying for our city to come to know Jesus. He shared about how this, and he called it unceasing prayer movement, had impacted other cities like Austin, Texas, and Bellingham, Washington, The impact of these cities and several others like them was this greater unity in the body of of Christ, the big C church, the church that went beyond denominations and encompassed all believers of Jesus. He said it also impacted an increased racial fellowship and reconciliation among races and generations. Every great movement of God, I know, has been preceded by people who've prayed asking God to move. And that's what this group was doing. And Steve invited me, said, we'd love for you to be a part of that. 
how could I say no to a group of people who are sincerely praying for God to move in our city? So I went and I started praying with these guys and they had a tremendous impact in my own heart and mind. And I've been praying with these leaders ever since. Why does that matter? I want you to hear what the Apostle Paul had to say in Romans, the ninth chapter. He said, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race. And then we skip to Romans, the 10th chapter, verse 1, and he says this. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Do you hear Paul's heart? He said, I would... I would allow myself to become the curse if it meant they could be saved. My prayer, he says, my heart's desire and my prayer to God is that they would be saved. Paul was praying. He was talking about these brothers of his. These are, these are Jews. These are Israelites. They're his own flesh and blood. They were the very ones, though, who were persecuting him so severely that on many occasions he suffered physical harm. He found himself incarcerated. They disrupted his ministry. They stirred up mobs against him. They even plotted his assassination. And yet the apostle Paul loved them and prayed, God... Would you show them mercy? Would you save them? God honored Paul's prayers for the souls of the lost. And many of those people put their faith in Christ. And God will honor our prayers too. We need to pray. Whether for a friend or for an enemy, whether for someone who is moral or immoral, whether for someone you know or you don't know, we should pray for those who live in Lexington who need Jesus. So we joined this unceasing prayer movement of prayer. You go, what does that mean? I'm glad you thought that and I verbalized it so that you could ask it. Currently, there are 19 churches that are praying collectively one day a month, covering the city for 24 hours. We will, we will take our spot on the wall to pray. We will cover our city with prayer for 24 hours on the second Thursday of every month, starting this month, for one year. That's our commitment. Here's how we plan to accomplish that. We're going to cover the 24 hours of praying through 15-minute prayer slots. We've divided the 24 hours into 96 15-minute increments. And I want to ask you to sign up to pray for 15 minutes. And some of you go, 15 minutes? I could do an hour, man. What are you? I mean, like I'm a prayer warrior. You know, fine. Sign up for an hour. You know, but here's the point. Collectively, all of us, prayer has been on the decline, but that stops here now. 
we can do something. Some of you are going, that's it? No, this is just the first step. The first step to saying, we're going to cover our city in prayer. You can do it very simply. One person, 15 minutes, sign up, right? Or maybe a family. And I hope if you have kids and you sign up for 15 minutes, that you sign up the whole family, that the kids become part of this. Our children's ministry said, hey, make sure parents know that our kids need to be involved in this. Don't leave them out. Put their names down when you sign up. Maybe you're in a life group or you're in a class and you can say, hey, we want to pray. We're going to pray together. Maybe you do it on Zoom. Maybe you do it in person. And some of you are saying, hey, our class, I mean, we could pray for an hour. Sign up for an hour. But we could pray for a half hour. Our group, our life group could pray for a half hour. Pray for a half hour. There are 96 opportunities to pray for God to move and for our city to come to know Jesus. Some of you might go, there's more than 96 people in here. Okay, Sherlock, what, what should we do? The truth is this. If we run out of spots, we'll reload every one of those 96. We'll make space if you want to pray and we, over, we overdo it. And 96 plus people want to pray. Our city needs it. That's why we're going to pray. Our city needs Jesus. Do you know, my son-in-law is a police officer and we, we were talking the other day and he said, do you know that there have been 37 murders in Lexington this year? That ties the all-time record in our city. And we have three more months to go. Murders on the increase. Overdose is on the increase. Marriages are in free fall. Sin is on the rise. Our city needs Jesus. This is a condition of the heart, but it's a condition that only Jesus can fix. We need to pray for our city because Lexington needs Jesus. Lexington needs Jesus. You know, there was a song had a great impact on me when I was a much younger man. It was written in 1973 by Andre Crouch. It was called Jesus is the Answer. And the chorus is very simple. It's like, I thought about singing it, but I'm going to spare you. Okay. Jesus is the answer for the world today. Above him, there's no other. Jesus is the way. If you don't know that song, you should look it up today and listen to it. In John 14, 6, Jesus said basically what Andre Crouch was singing about. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the answer. He's the only answer to our broken relationship with God. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. Apart from him, there is no hope. There is no salvation. Apart from him, our sins are still in place. He came that our sins that separated us from God might be washed away, paid the price for our sins, that we might have a personal relationship with God. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the only way that a man or woman, a boy or girl, will ever have a relationship with God. Jesus is the answer for them to be saved. Jesus is the answer for Lexington. Jesus is the answer for our city. Jesus is the answer for the world today. Above him, there's no other. Jesus is the way. B. 
Because Lexington needs Jesus, we're going to pray. We're going to extend that group of prayer warriors that meet every Tuesday morning at 6.30. We're going to extend it. We're going to become the 19th church out of the 19. We're the last one to sign up so far. And we're going to pray for 24 hours on the second Thursday of every month over the next 12 months, starting this month, praying that God will move people and people will make Jesus the Lord and Savior of their lives. So will you join me and my family in praying for our city? Here's how you do it. You probably saw there are some boards in the lobby and they've got those 96 opportunities listed. And when we dismiss, I want to encourage you to go out there and sign up for, on one of those cards. You just pull a card off. They're stapled. You'll see. You pull it off. Give us a little bit of information. And then you drop it in the box. You just pick what time you would like to pray. You'll see they're listed. And drop it on in the box. And as those spots are filled, you'll begin to see a message spelled out behind those cards. That's why we're doing this. Those of you that are joining us online, you can go to nccleaxorg prayer and you can sign up there. And somebody is gonna be monitoring that feed today and as you sign up, they're gonna go and pull your card and you'll be part of that wall as well. Let me close with this. In a group this size, most of you who come on Sunday, you know Christ. You know him because you gave your life to him at one point in the journey of your life. And here's my hope. If you're here today and you don't know him, you're checking it out. If you've got questions, I'm going to be right down front here. I'd love to chat with you about what Jesus has done in my life and what I know he can do in yours. We've also got some people that will be down front to pray. If you want just somebody to pray. We've been talking about prayer. We're going to reclaim it. You may have noticed over the last month or so that a number of our, of our leaders around here have joined in to being part of a prayer team. A number of other prayer warriors, they're down. They're just going to be down here. They'll have a little lanyard on. You can see and you can ask them, hey, would you pray with me? And they'll do it. Whatever the case is, we're ready to reclaim prayer. And we're going to take some steps right now to do that. So let me pray, and then we'll, we'll finish. Father, thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for joining our hearts together for prayer, rekindling what seems to be in decline. Lord, that stops here today. Help us to be mindful of just what a great privilege it is to come before you, to talk with you, Wherever we are at any time, whatever the circumstances, you have time for us and you will hear our prayers. And Lord, as we pray and we pray for our city, Lord, I pray that you will move in this city of Lexington to change hearts. Holy Spirit, will you just move through this city in a way that when we see you work and the harvest comes, we will know that truly was the work of God, the power of God, we were witnessing. Jesus is the answer for our city. So Lord, help us to help those who are far from you to see their need for Jesus. Lord, I pray this in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, 
Jesus' name.